Hi, everyone. I'm Nate. And I'm Shelby. And welcome to Almost Heretical, the show for those questioning, deconstructing, or changing in their relationship to God, church, and the Bible. When we started questioning our faith, we felt alone and unequipped to handle the barrage of questions and verses that were being lobbed at us, both by Christian friends and often by our own minds. But when we began to examine the Bible from an academic perspective, we discovered that we weren't crazy and we might actually be onto something really beautiful. And we're here to help you navigate your own deconstruction, connect with others on this journey through our Facebook group and Zoom calls, and find a way forward built on a foundation of honesty and authenticity. We're so glad you're on this journey with us. Who are you? There's some days I think I know, and other days I don't. So I'll continue the necessary sifting to find what I've been missing. Hi, friends. We had a wonderful chat today with Rain Wilson. He's, of course, Dwight Schrute from The Office. That's the the main way you probably know him. He's the co-founder of Soul Pancake, a media company that explores meaningful and thought-provoking content. And he's an author. He wrote The Bassoon King back in 2015, which kind of goes over his whole life story. And then his latest book that's out now, Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution. I've been um, reading Soul Boom as we come up to this interview. And as you'll hear me say in the interview, it's just... It's so refreshing and hopeful and inspiring. And I mean, I'm not even halfway through it yet, but I I just can't wait to read more. I feel like for the first time in years, I'm getting to embrace spirituality in a way that doesn't feel um, weird and religious, but it still feels meaningful and not wishy-washy. So I, I couldn't recommend it more. And I'm honestly excited to see how it, I think, probably will revolutionize my life and hopefully a lot of ours. And you got to stick around and listen to this whole interview. At the end, I ask, I almost called him Dwight. I ask Rain <laughs> a few office questions um, that I don't know that he's been asked before, which was, it was kind of fascinating. Um, I also asked what Dwight Schrute would think of this book, Soul Boom. Um, so you got to stick around to the end for that. But then we just have this wonderful, amazing conversation with Rain. And it gets super practical on ways that this whole idea of soul boom and this whole idea of a spiritual revolution, like you can take some steps today to start seeing the impact of this in your life and and how you view your friends and family, your community. Like this can this is not just like in the clouds spirituality with incense. Like this this has uh, an impact today, like right when this interview ends for you listening to it. So buckle up, you know, get some dishes to wash, find a comfy chair you know, start your run, whatever you're about to do right now, but enjoy this conversation with Rain Wilson. Well, awesome, Rain. I'm so excited to be talking to you, a fellow Pacific Northwester, which is cool. We're over here in Portland. So Whoa. You're Seattle, right? Seattle born and raised, University wow. Hospital, Lake Forest Park. I lived in Olympia for three years as a kid. My wife is from Portland, Lincoln High huh. School. Yep, yep. We have a little house outside of Bend, Oregon. So oh, yes. it's it's all the vibes, all the vibes. 
Yes, I love it. You know, there's just uh, there's a way of life that people not from the Pacific Northwest might just not understand. So it's cool to meet someone from here, and uh, you get that instant connection. We enjoy rain, okay? We just do. <laughs> that it's, doesn't mean we don't like sunshine, but we like it. It's it's part of life. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I think. A lot of people find you because of your work in the office. Kind of have to call out the elephant in the room, right? Like you are Dwight Schrute from the office. And sure. so even I have to overcome the I'm talking to Dwight Schrute <laughs> moment, right? Because yeah, okay. you're all not looking at him. I'm looking at him, right? I'm looking at Dwight Schrute. But you're an author and you wrote, uh, you've written a couple books, but Soul Boom is the one that we have in front of us. And uh, you're talking about this spiritual revolution, this spiritual awakening that needs to happen in this country. What what even got you thinking about this, that this even needs to happen? And what are the things you're, you're looking at? It might be the same TV we're watching, but what are the things that you're looking at and, and you're going, we need a spiritual revolution, we need a spiritual awakening? Wait, you're getting right to the heart of the book and right in the, and on the first question, no less. Um, <laughs> and um, I don't know even how to answer it because it's a, it's a deep and multifaceted and complex question. But... I will say that the main thesis of the book that perhaps many of your listeners can relate to is that systems as they currently are working are uh, broken and corrupt. Um, they're set up on the wrong foundation. Uh, they're falling apart. And we as a culture keep putting band-aids on these cancerous broken systems. Hmm that are unsustainable. And we keep trying to patch them up with legislation. And we keep bickering about politics back and forth, mm. when in actuality, our systems need a complete overhaul and retooling to base them upon spiritual principles. Spiritual principles that are universals. They're not Christian, Western spiritual principles. They're not they're not Hindu or Buddhist or Abrahamic or Dharmic or any brand of religion, but there are um, the, the foundation of compassion, of love, of mutual respect, of collaboration, of how we build community at the grassroots. Um, there's a spiritual disease uh, afflicting humanity and its systems, and that's why we need a spiritual revolution. And this is a revolution that's not for Christians. I'm a Baha'i, it's not for Baha'is. It's not for spiritual, but not religious. It's not for Hindus or, or Buddhists or Muslims. It's, it's for all of us. Um, and even for, even for agnostics and atheists, but uh, a complete and total redefinition of how we do most everything. So long, wow. everybody. Thanks so much. It's been great being Boom. a part of this podcast. Oh. But, Shortest um, podcast episode. Usually ever. in an interview, that's what I end with. But we're beginning <laughs> yes. with the central oh, yeah. thesis. And I have about eight different questions that come off of simply what you just said. But I will Great. say I'm I'm in the middle of reading the book and it is amazing. Um and just very inspiring. I think I, I was sitting next to Nate while I was reading it the other day and I was like, this is just inspiring. And I feel like I haven't really read something that felt that way in a long time because it does feel genuinely like a message that is for everyone. And it speaks to me and my experience, even though you have no idea what my experience is, because there's something universal beneath it all. I, I thank you very much for saying that. And I, I will say that my goal was to write a book for everyone that, and I have heard from folks uh, after the fact, I've heard from born again Christians 
uh, and I've heard from diehard atheists that they've really enjoyed and gotten something out of the book. And, mm -hmm. and that really was, you know, one of my top three goals is that it's, it's reconceptualizing spirituality itself to make it far more inclusive to everyone's human experience. I mean, if I think you should probably get a Nobel Peace Prize for writing a book on spirituality that both atheists and born again Christians yeah. are loving and growing from. That's that's something worth being proud of. So, uh, well done. Thank you. I want to go back to the beginning to to little Rain Wilson uh, back growing up in Seattle, Washington, right? And you are you're raised what? Are you raised Baha'i? I am raised poorly. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh at that, but I have read part of the book, so I, I know where this is going. <laughs> well, uh, oh, look, he here. I just so happen to have my previous book, The Bassoon King yes. by Rain Wilson, My Life in Art, Faith, and Idiocy, which is um, uh, describes my childhood. It's more of a comedic memoir than Soul Boom is. Mm. But yeah, so... Uh, I was born and raised in Seattle for the most part. We spent three years in uh, Nicaragua, essentially being Baha'i missionaries. Although in the Baha'i faith, there is uh, where uh, proselytization is against the Baha'i faith. So we can certainly teach people about the Baha'i faith, but like attempting to convert mass numbers um, uh, is not uh, through proselytization is not uh, in the cards for Baha'i. So mm. I was born and raised in a Baha'i family. I'm an only child. I was born in the late 60s. My parents were kind of bohemians. My dad lived on a houseboat and painted murals. And uh, my mom was an actress, which I didn't find out until I was a teenager in wow. local Seattle theater and doing experimental plays. And um, they uh, were these crazy bohemians and like so many uh, counterculture folks in the late 60s and early 70s, they were very open to alternative spiritual ideas and mm. became members of the Baha'i faith just at the same time as Cat Stevens was becoming a Muslim and the Beatles were visiting with the Maharishi and Steve Jobs was on a Buddhist you know, monastery retreat. Yeah. And this was in the groundwater, you know, as the Eisenhower America of, you know, Protestant Christian America kind of kind of came crumbling down through the Vietnam War and through racial upheaval and, and civil rights movement. Um, people were looking for other ways of seeing and finding the truth. You know, unfortunately, far too many of them turned to drugs. But um, as my parents might have a little bit, I don't know. But the point is, is I grew up a member of the Baha'i faith in kind of bohemian Seattle in the 70s. And it was pretty awesome. I have to say, like, it was very racially diverse. Hmm. There were a lot of African-American Baha'is. There were a lot of Native American Baha'is and, and Latino Baha'is and um, uh, lots of different folks. And there was a lot of singing and kumbayaing and prayer gatherings and metaphysical studies and conversations and um, just a lot of joy and celebration, celebrating love and unity, and as Baha'is are wont to do. And but in the midst of that, um, I will say that I really struggled because my parents really struggled. And my mom took off when I was about a year and a half, two years old. Um, my dad remarried uh, a, a stepmom. They didn't really love each other. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, they told me once when I asked them, uh, when did you know that you were not really meant to be married? And they both said, you know, within about six months of getting married. Wow. And yikes. So but they I stayed had a, together for. But they stayed together supposedly for me. And they got wow. divorced the second I went away to college. I literally was like, called them in like October from Tufts University in Boston. And they're like, oh, by the way, we're getting a divorce. Wow. Um, so, which did not surprise me in the slightest, wow. um, but was still pretty devastating to me. It was the only family I had. Mm-hmm. So it was a very, um, I know I'm rambling a lot, but it was no, a very- No, no, this is all context. It was, it was very, um, uh, it was just, it really messes with your mind when you're in a religious faith that preaches love and unity and healing and togetherness and service, and you're in a marriage that is loveless and angry and resentful. And mm. um, and so there was a lot of talk about love and unity, and there wasn't a lot of action about love and unity, and that will really mess with your head. So, yeah. Um, and that with my mom taking off, like I, it would kind of created a, a recipe for some mental health issues to be coming down the pike. Of course. Yeah. No kidding. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. So do you feel like, I mean, growing up, I mean, for one, I think it's just interesting to hear um, a lot of, I think a lot of us in this stage of sort of deconstructing Christianity are like, wow, these other religions all just seems amazing now because they just they have something we've never heard of before. So it's interesting to hear you talking about, you know, the Baha'i religion and how that was, you know, wonderful and good, but also it doesn't, like there is no secret key to, like if you're just in the right faith then you get you get it all like and and if anything you know a story like yours just goes to show that um the the most important things are the basics of you know family and love yeah. and yeah. and it doesn't matter how good your faith is it can't make up for those basics so yeah just think oh it's an interesting um message and i'm also i'm just curious for people who are unfamiliar with what the bahai faith is like could you give a brief synopsis of of that sure so the baha'i faith believes that there's only one god and this god is called in the baha'i faith the unknowable essence um there's it's not certainly 
I don't think anyone actually believes in an old man with a beard on a cloud, but it's certainly not that at all. But mm. a creative cosmic uh, impulse that is all loving, that uh, has created infinite universes and uh, given us, you know, souls that are eternal. Eventually, we're going to go. Uh, all of us are going to have. We're going to meet our our creator after a, a, a glorious infinite journey throughout time and space in this physical plane and beyond into infinite other planes. I know that sounds all kind of hippy dippy and cosmic, but let me go back a page. There is one God and what, how this God educates humanity spiritually, because this God is seeking for us human species to grow and mature spiritually is he, for lack of a better gender pronoun, he sends down, um, divine spiritual teachers every 500 or 1,000 years or so, continually refreshing God's message, but twisting, suiting the message for whatever population um, that messenger is coming into. So you go way, way back to Abraham, to, to Zoroaster, to Krishna, mm. to Moses, to, to Buddha, to Jesus and to Muhammad, and now Baha'is believe that Baha'u'llah is, whose name means the glory of God, the title means the glory of God. He lived in Persia and the Middle East in the mid-1800s. Baha'is believe in all of the world's religions, in all of the world's great holy teachers, in all of the world's great holy texts, but believe that there is a new, what Baha'is would call a manifestation of God for this day and age, for modern humanity. And his message, Baha'u'llah's message, is all about creating unity, that we're all one beautiful, diverse, unified human family on planet Earth. But Baha'is believe in Jesus and read the Bible. I have a friend who's Christian and he's like, hey, I'm Christian and I'm a Baha'i. I have a friend mm. who's Jewish and he's like, well, I'm, I'm Jewish and, and I am all Baha'i. Because you don't mm. deny those other experiences or messages or truths it's just the most recent chapter in an ever unfolding book baha'u'llah calls it the changeless faith of god eternal in the past eternal in the future and this revelation will continue to be updated for as long as humanity is around on the planet um mm -hmm. so the the central teachings of the baha'i faith have to do with um elimination of racial prejudice equality of women and men of a kind of a lot of what you would call social justice issues like elimination of extremes of wealth and poverty mm. um the harmony of science and religion mm. but all of these precepts are founded on spiritual ideals they're not about you know political parties and and legislation in order to enact uh this the kind of healing that is needed in the modern world. You're probably making a lot of Baha'is just with our audience right here, I'm <laughs> guessing. Well, and I was just, I love the sound of that because I have often felt that way about, I mean, in recent years of kind of reevaluating my faith and reevaluating how I interpret Jesus, I have felt like Jesus fits that type of a description very well as someone who, I mean, Obviously, the word Christian did not exist. He was not trying to get people to be Christians. And so, and, but he was asking people to follow 
in you know the the way like it was and so i've often felt like maybe the way that he was talking about was not meant to be some exclusive religion like not a new religion but a way that a muslim could also follow the way of jesus and a hindu could also follow the way of jesus and and so that seems like a similar kind of idea with the the baha'i faith is that it's almost like this umbrella of and it's more of a way of life well and and let's not forget that the buddha had the way you know mm -hmm. when and he literally taught the way this is the yeah. way of 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 the buddha and i mean the dao daoism dao yeah. means the way and it literally means the way yeah and um for you know in the baha'i cosmology jesus is one of many manifestations of god mm -hmm. and we would view jesus saying that he's the son of god metaphorically mm -hmm. because it's an easy way to understand oh if there is an almighty father and i'm the son i have a direct correlation with this almighty father and i'm inhabiting like dna the very best qualities of the almighty father and i have a mm -hmm. i have a through line to mm -hmm. divinity and it's it's an easy metaphor to encapsulate that it doesn't literally mean that god's sperm created a human baby and then that he grew up and he was 33 mm -hmm. and then floated up uh, you know that's that's not the baha'i uh yeah. belief and so you know i was just thinking about uh because i've been doing you know speaking to her about this book and i've had some conversations with christians and a lot of them say online and to me in person well jesus is the way and the truth and the light and there's no way to the father except through him and and that reminded me of another quote uh that jesus said and that's often used, that phrase is often used to kind of discredit any other path. Oh, absolutely. Right? So it's kind of like this sledgehammer quote. Yep. But Jesus also said, as I was doing a little research on this, he said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And that's in John 9, 4, 5. Wow. Um, as long as I am in the world, I am yeah, the light yeah. of the world. So does that mean that if he's not in the world he's no longer the light in the world like that is kind of gonna pass on the torch yeah is there a passing on and does that suit you know muhammad and and a quranic revelation and let's not forget that the quranic revelation of the prophet muhammad peace be upon him uh was to unify these uh polytheist warring arab tribes and the central message of the quran is really suited to that place in that time and if you think about the Buddha's message, you know, of the elimination of suffering, of oneness, of peace, of being in the moment, of, of surrender, that doesn't really talk about God, came in the midst of Hindu, where there were gods everywhere. There's thousands of gods. Every village had a god. Every town had a couple gods. And my god's better than your god. And I sacrifice to this god and worship to this god. And here comes this divine teacher without any mention of any god whatsoever because there already were enough gods but he needed to bring another message so this is how god's continually unfolding revelation uh continues anyway enough about that oh that was a beautiful summary i mean i have the i have soul boom sitting right here and i literally just from the cover just from the title there are like a couple of questions that uh, first of all the soul boom like where did that those two words, how did those kind of become your key? Like, this is the title of my book. Like, <laughs> it's, it really is not as profound or uh, as it sounds like we were searching. I knew I wanted why we need a spiritual revolution, but it, mm -hmm. it felt like it needed something splashy and attention getting. Right. I yeah. mean, I started a, a 
a digital media company called Soul Pancake. Um, oh, kid president. Uh, back in the day, kid president and mm. many other uh, folks, Soul Pancake. So I was a fan of catchy names with the word soul in them. And the publisher liked Soul Boom right off the bat. Okay. And I didn't love it. And I still don't completely <laughs> love it, but I couldn't find anything better. And I tried. Mm. I tried like 170 variations. Oh, of, I believe it. Um, and it just it kind of did what I needed it to do because I, I wanted it to be catchy, a little bit irreverent, like punchy, something to break mm -hmm. through. And one of the difficulties that I have in spiritual conversation, and, and I'm getting the feeling that the two of you do as well, is like it can very easily digress into kind of like this really new agey, touchy-feely, airy-fairy conversation where spirituality talk is very precious and it's very... Mm -hmm kind of crystals and chakras and and mood states. And I didn't want to do that. This is about hmm. practical spiritual tools for personal transformation and societal transformation. Ooh, that was a great line right there. Clip this, stick it in the TikTok, boom, viral, <laughs> boom. You're famous. Soul boom. Soul boom. <laughs> You've been soul like boomed. It. You got boomed. Um, <laughs> all right, okay. Probably the most important word on the front of this book is the word spiritual. And... Um, and that is, I mean, I knew from bef the beginning of this interview, I wanted to ask you, like, how do you define spirituality? And just, I think this is an important conversation to, to hit because I think there's so many different ideas about what it means. I mean, one is totally what you were just saying. I think a lot of people who especially grew up in a maybe, um, you know, a very text centered religion with, when they hear the word spirituality, they think of, yeah, the, the wishy washy chakras and uh, incense and and that's and then i'm sure that you know the people coming from the other side think of it in a whole different way so how would you define spirituality what is spiritual and how yeah how is what does it mean to you um super important uh question and because you're right to some people it means seances you know mm -hmm. and ghosts uh and to some people it literally means there is it's church on sunday and there's not mm -hmm. any there's not any consideration of spiritual topics or themes outside of like church going or mosque going or synagogue going. So for me, you know, I go with really the dictionary definition, which is like concern with the non-material aspects of life. Um, and uh, concern with the spirit and the soul. So mm. um, one way I've described it in the past, it's like everything monkeys can't do <laughs> so hum humans do most of the things monkeys can do like we procreate we throw feces um maybe you guys don't but i i enjoy it uh they you know they eat they have sex they create tribes there's social status they um have have communities they want to accrue stuff they they want comfort and pleasure like don't they kind of go to war yeah they can yeah, yeah chimpanzees can have tribal wars and um but what can humans do that monkeys can't well we write poetry and we sing and um we uh love and we're altruistic and we uh cultivate spiritual virtues inside of us like kindness and love and compassion and humility and honesty. And we seek transcendence. Uh, we seek a connection with a higher power. We seek uh, truth and beauty through poetry, through opera. We seek kind of a connection 
based on love that um, fills our hearts with light and with joy. All of those aspects of being human is what I mean uh, when I say spiritual. Mm -hmm. And a, a quote I throw around a lot is, uh, but it's so perfect and beautiful and it sums up my whole mission. And that's from Father Tehard de Chardin who says, we are not human beings having a spiritual experience. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. And to me, that sums up being spiritual. Like, I am a spiritual being. I am consciousness and light and soul and spirit. And I'm inhabiting or related to or associated with this magnificent, fleshy, middle-aged body that I'm tooling around in for, you know, 70, 80, 90 years if I'm lucky. And that body will fall away. And my reality, um, my spiritual beingness, will continue on its journey. You talk about in the book that spirituality has kind of been uh, gotten rid of, I guess, in our society, in our culture, that type of thing. So like, first of all, when, when do you feel like this happened? I mean, a revolution, right? We need to like come back. We need to, we need to reinvigorate. So like, when, when do you feel like this started happening and, and, and why do you have any like mile signposts, I guess, along the way that, uh, that you look to and say, this is when things started kind of going downhill in the spiritual realm here in this country, but also just in the West in general. Boy, I mean, how about uh, AD 330 and Constantine? Um, Amen. <laughs> and, uh, and church becoming kind of this state religion and kind of a tool for power uh, with power hierarchies. I talk yep. about the early days of the Christian church, you know, those first 300 years and how beautiful they were because it was this grand human experiment. And a lot of Christians don't really think about this as deeply as they need to. Mm -hmm. Before this, there, were, well, there was never a point in human history in which all different kinds of people gathered under the same tent. Uh, you could be a Phoenician trader, you could be a Samaritan, you could be a Jew, you could be a, a Goth, you could be a, a slave girl, you could be a Roman you know, general, but on Sundays they would gather and they would praise Jesus and read you know, books of the Bible or stories from the Bible and sing and give, and give praise and thanks and salute the Father and, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And uh, everyone was welcome. And it was the first time that humans gathered outside of their tribes mm. with, with a, something larger. And in fact, there's actual Roman historians that talk about what is this altruism thing that these early Christians are doing? It's this cray cray. Like they're sacrificing their time and their comfort and their attention and their money to serve poor people who aren't even members of their tribe. That's outrageous. Why are they doing this? Why would a bunch of Jew Christians get together and serve Samaritans or Egyptians? Or why would, you know, Roman Christians gather and, and serve, you know, Gauls, you know? But there was uh, a, an incredible light in the world uh, during that time in this grand experiment that Christianity has really lost track of that great sweeping embrace of all of humanity under one tent. Hmm. So um, I don't know, man. I mean, there's colonialization. I mean, the list goes on and on. I completely understand why there are heretics and why people have left organized religion and don't want anything to do with it. 
some of the greatest crimes against humanity have been committed in the name of an all-loving God. Like, I, mm. I feel you, brothers and sisters. Mm. And one thing that I say in the book is like, maybe we threw the spiritual baby out with the religious bathwater, mm. you know, um, because we've, uh, at least in secular America, where I more live, like New York, LA, sorry, I'm a coastal elite. Um, <laughs> no one wants anything to do with organized religion. Um, and they're kind of vaguely spiritual, but not religious. But what have we lost by jettisoning religion? We've lost, again, that sense of transcendence, of commonality, of a group of people praising together, singing together, and most importantly, serving together, a part of something larger than themselves, which is so beautiful, um, and which the Christian church at its best does kind of better than anybody, frankly. Christians are really good at praying and praising. Mm -hmm. The Baha'is could learn a lot from Christians around that. Um, but when did things go south? Um, you know, toxified uh, partisanship, uh, toxified uh, uh, fundamentalism, uh, combined with abject materialism, where uh, greed and lust rule the day, um, a, a disconnection from service to a power greater than ourselves. Um, this all happened in the last century or two and uh, have put uh, humanity in a perilous state. I'm so glad that your uh, immediate response was 8330. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big one we've talked about a lot on this show because I, yeah, I 100% agree that it just radically shifted something and that, I mean, it was, you know, not just the Constantine making it an official religion, but then shortly thereafter, the canonization and kind of just finalization of what used to be a very kind of open and growing process of scripture as literature rather than as, you know, authority necessarily. And mm -hmm. There's a point that I make in the book is going back to Nate's question. I talk to a lot of young people and I go to college campuses and, and talk to them and they're very confused because so many things are going wrong. I mean, climate change, mental health crisis, increased militarization. Now, you know, autocracy increasing, democracy decreasing, uh, degradation of the environment. I mean, the list just goes on and on. Um, uh, racial rancor. And at the same time, there's all these great things happening, you know, global movement to save the planet and, you know, Black Lives Matter and uh, Me Too and women standing up and not being, saying, hey, it's not okay to, you know, sexualize me in that way. And, um, you know, youth movements and, uh, uh, you know, say what you like about political correctness and wokeness, and we all have our issues there, but bringing to the forefront the idea like, hey, it's just not okay to make cavalier jokes and have stereotypical responses to races be in our dialogue. Um, you know, maybe they've kind of gone too far in a lot of respects. I'm sure that's, that's true. But there's so much progress happening at the same time. So uh, from my perspective as a Baha'i, I see this massive uh, disintegration happening at the same time as integration. Hmm. And this can be very hard for young people to kind of wrap their heads around these two forces happening at the same time. In some ways, humanity is coming together, loving each other, learning, maturing in some amazing ways. 
And then in other ways, things are falling apart and worse than ever. So they don't know where to focus. It's like, well, these things are really good, but these things are even worse than ever. But these things are happening and they're even better than ever. So, because you asked like, why are we at this breaking point of a spiritual revolution? It's because the forces of disintegration and the forces of integration are both exploding at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that can only lead to a complete kind of reassessment, reformulation of um, uh, how we do things. Yeah, And we, it is important to hold both of those in our heads at the same time. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Mm, yeah. Mm. So if you were to get a guarantee that let's, I don't know, let's say 75% of Americans were going to read your book and take it to heart, that would be, I mean, you'd be the, the, the best author of all time, basically. So I wish you in that direction. But um, what would you hope that in a hundred years... Like society could look like if people kind of really got the message of what you're saying here and like what would change? How would things change? Sure. So I, you're probably not at the chapter yet, but at the very end of the book, I have a chapter called uh, The Seven Pillars of a Spiritual Revolution. I finished the book without this chapter hmm. and I was like, ah, oh, I'm done. Yay. I made my deadline. And then I looked <laughs> at the book and I was like, you know, Rain, this isn't going to cut it. I can't end the book on a downer of like everything that's broken and wrong, because I do go into that in some detail. And I ha thought, well, I need to provide some positive working tools and clues and inspiration to the reader and to the revolutionary uh, to move forward. So I'll say that I hope that some of these are taken to heart. First of all, I would want this to just be part of the conversation because that's the purpose of the book. I'm not here to convert anyone to anything. I am simply here to, to initiate a conversation of like, let's look a little bit deeper. Let's just not look at like, oh, here's an injustice. Let's, let's get a political party or a piece of legislation to try and, you know, put the finger in the dike of that injustice. You know, mm -hmm. let's look at the whole dam itself, right? Let's take a look at the big picture. Um, so some of these pillars I have here, write a new mythology of humanity. The old mythology of humanity is it was dog eat dog, backstabbing every man for himself. We're aggressive, we're warlike and militaristic and materialistic and greedy. And we, we need a balance of power in order to sustain these greedy, horrible humans. Well, there's some truth to that, but there's also truth to the fact that we're collectivists and we're kind and we're altruistic and we serve each other and we work together. And time and time again, there's a history of the world um, uh, you know, when uh, Howard Zinn wrote uh, The People's History of the United States, that was really mm -hmm. mind-blowing to me when I read it when I was 20. I was like, holy moly, it's a whole other way of looking at history. Mm -hmm. But there's a spiritual history of humanity that could be written where it's like, let's look at the time when, you know, two tribes could have gone to war and instead decided to work together and share resources mm -hmm. and trade and, and have an economy of gift-giving. So there's another hum mythology of humanity that we could explore. 
I have a section here, foster joy and squash cynicism. We're such a cynical world right now. And it's just easy to roll your eyes. Even at this conversation, there's probably 17% of the listeners right now rolling their eyes. Like, oh, sure. Yeah, Rain. There's this TV guy telling us that we're going to solve human aggression. Good luck. <laughs> but, yeah. but we need to keep hope alive and we need to believe in our strength and our beauty and our resilience, you know, and with, with the glorious God as our sails and our rudder uh, to continue moving forward in our work. Because if we get cynical, we, we will fail, we will lose, we won't participate. Um, I talk about how systems are adversarial and we need to rethink these adversarial systems where they're based on aggression and one-upsmanship and greed and lust and power. And we need to th rethink our systems to be more uh, cooperative and collaborative. I have here, don't just protest, build something. We live in a culture mm -hmm. right now where we protest everything. Oh, there's an injustice. Oh no, ah, that cop shot that yeah. guy, you know, that black kid. Ah! And then, but nothing changes. And then there's just another cop shooting a black kid three weeks later or three months later, and we protest again. But it's much harder to build something than to protest something. Protesting, especially on the keyboard with Twitter, yeah. is easy peasy. It's really hard to work with a group of people to affect social change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I could go on and on, but I, I will say that uh, another one here is, I say it's grassroots, baby. Um, and I would hope that 100 years from now, we're doing more work on the grassroots in our communities uh, rather than kind of on the national level, let's say, or, or in addition to the national level where we're taking a, a great, curious and loving interest in um, the people around us, the communities around us and building coalition and serving together and seeing what the needs of the community are and, and giving our time, energy and comfort in service to those needs. I love this. Just, I mean, you think about the times we're in right now and I get, I honestly get scared sometimes. I mean, I'll be driving down the street and the high schoolers at the bus stop are all, you know, staring down at their phones and they're not talking to the person that's two feet away from them. Right. But then the people that are talking to each other, the adults, let's say, they can't agree on anything. Right. And they are just, like you said, just slamming each other on, on Facebook. They're blocking each other on Facebook, friends that they've been friends for 30, 40 years, and they just will so quickly mute or block a friend because, well, we don't agree on, you know, these two or three things. And so it's over. Right. And so just, I get, I mean, perfectly honest, I get a bit discouraged at the times that we're in right now. And so when you say we need this spiritual revolution, I just imagine these people listening to the show right now and they're involved in these Facebook battles or they're just like, you know what, I'm over it. I'm off of all the social media and, and but now I don't have my connection, right? I don't have my community anymore. And so just there's so many people all over, all over the place. And you've talked about your story of like loss and addiction and mental health. And I think these are all things that are bubbling and boiling over right now. It's all just mixed together. Um, I'm just curious, as you imagine these listeners, a listener to a show right now, but what's one thing you can you can start today, you know, that feels doable, that first step in the right direction? Um, what would you say to someone? That's that's such a great question. It really is such a great question, Nate. I wish I had, uh, it's kind of the first time I've been asked it on this book tour. So I'm not, mm. it's interesting, I'm not really prepared to answer it. There's a bunch of things that just popped into my head. Mm. Um, 
So I wanted to say meditation because even five or 10 minutes of just stilling and quieting the mind and being receptive and open to the universe mm. uh, can be incredibly helpful. I, of course, couple it with prayer. Um, I find prayer and meditation to be like a yin and a yang that they kind of feed and serve each other. Um, I was thinking about gratitude, that gratitude is the antidote for anger and resentment to start each day in gratitude. And you can do that in your prayer. Um, uh, and, but I'm here, here's, here's one thing that just popped into my head. I was, uh, a friend of mine, uh, who's black was kind of going through a hard time financially. And then I needed an assistant to do some travels, speaking gigs and, and shoots and stuff like that. And so I hired my buddy as, as an assistant of mine, uh, temporarily. And I noticed that we were traveling, like he would always, when he saw like other black folk, um, especially, but all, all, especially all people of colors, he would always like reach out and be like, Hey brother, how you doing? Looking good. Nice to see you today. How are you? Um, and be like, good, good. And there would be like this connection. And I realized like, oh, wow, I don't do that. Is this, <laughs> is this part of my white privilege that I've mm. kind of, I'm not mean, I'm not a dick, but I kind of ignore the uh, working class a lot when I'm around. And he taught me a very valuable lesson. And now when I go around to a restaurant and an airport and a, you know, a hotel, wherever I am, like the least among us are what I try and pay the most attention to and to just mm. high five folks, compliment them, mm. give them a pat on the back, joke around. Um, I know this might come off of like, oh, there's the Hollywood elitist, you know, like deigning to talk to the little people, but it, it's really about, um, uh, loving the least among, among us and connecting. And, uh, I was thinking about, I don't know if I'm even answering your question because my mind Not, is yeah. wandering, I like it. but I, I, you know, my father passed away, uh, three years ago and I write about mm -hmm. that a, a great deal in, in my book and what I learned and what, how I suffered. And I, you know, I used it as a, as a framework for talking about death and the soul and the journey of the soul. And, I was thinking about my dad in, the, in a similar context, like for all of his flaws, one of the things he did so incredibly well is he made every room he went into a better place hmm. with, with light, with a compliment, with a joke, with a, how are you today? With a curiosity, you know, and, and it wasn't forced. It wasn't fake. It was very gentle and just born of love. And I guess, that goes along with what my friend uh, Jamie uh, would do when we were traveling together. And can we one day at a time increase our love and how that love manifests itself by just 10%? Can you just be 10% mm. more loving one day, just today, just wow. in reaching out, in, in being curious, in connecting, just going to be 10% more? Because that feels doable, right? I, can be, I can't be 60% more loving. <laughs> but I can be 10% right. more loving and it might mm -hmm. build from there. And I, this has helped me a lot. And I, I am a genuinely more loving 
person as I go about my life in the world, kind of having learned from these two valuable mentors of mine. Mm. I love that. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And a lot of what you've said today has, um, I think probably in both Nate and I's minds, has reminded us of a lot of conversations that we've been having lately around um, the topic of, I guess, of community and of service. And we we come from a, um, a background where all of, essentially all goodness really was attributed to Jesus. Like Jesus died for us. That's why we love people. Mm -hmm. And that was taken so seriously that I think even listeners of this show who are, you know, maybe piecing apart those beliefs still have this kind of inner apologist, this inner voice that tells them like, all of this is meaningless without Jesus or, or this is, or like, you know, there's no true motivation without something deeper than just, you know, and so anyway, I, I guess the question I want to try and get at from you is like, where, where do you think those deepest values come from? And a lot of, I think, more traditional evangelical Christians would feel like motivation to do good comes from Jesus. And yet, you know, I believe that it comes that it's possible for anyone to obviously be motivated to do good. And I think anyone outside Christianity sees that as a pretty obvious. But for those who are coming out of that, you know, yeah, what would you say if there was a community that was just starting, who was trying to build a community around just the principles of loving each other? What is the the basis for that? Or is simply, we want a better world? Like, is that the basis? Yeah. What's the springboard? What's the touchstone? What's the inspiration for one to act uh, with love and selflessness. Yeah. And I, that's such a good question. I don't have an exact answer. It's an important question. Um, there's, I think it differs person to person, but we live in a world that's very self-centered and we need to be other-centered. Um, so that's part of it. I feel like, you know, in the positive psychology movement, it's been proven that like giving to others and serving others actually helps us with our own well-being and self-esteem, right? Um, so there is there can be kind of a selfish component to it as well. Uh, and I think that from a if I would if I was you know at a divinity school speaking, I would say Jesus can be that inspiration. And for a Buddhist, the Buddha and the example of the Buddha, the way of the Buddha can be. And the way of Lord Krishna um, and the Bhagavad Gita and the mm -hmm. way of the prophet Muhammad. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, for a Baha'i, the example of Baha'u'llah and of his eldest son, Abdu'l-Baha, who is a great spiritual teacher, they are God-made manifest. They are sons of God. They are uh, shining lights of God. And we just look to their lives and their example, and it's so beautiful and inspiring. We can't know God because it's, you know, it's a, a creative force behind this physical plane and an infinite other number of planes. It's a kind of a power that's so great that it's beyond all comprehension we can't even imagine eternity let alone like uh some kind of creative force that lives uh beyond eternity <laughs> so but here's how i wind it all up i will say um 
we have divinity in us. Each one of us have a little shards of divinity. We have pieces of, of Jesus and the Buddha and Muhammad, and we have, uh, we have God in us. And that is our, our heart and our soul and our, our kindness and our compassion and the love we give and, uh, the consciousness that we expand and the connections we make. Um, and that's our reality. That's, that's who we are. You know, yeah, we're these fleshy suits as well, and we want to take naps and poop and have a nice dinner and you know watch the game and kick back and and be beloved. That's part of the human experience as well. But we also are we have this light, and we need to honor that light and live in that light. Abdul Baha says, uh, "Man in reality is a spiritual being, and only when he lives in the spirit is he truly happy." So it's living in the spirit. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the mm -hmm. Buddha taught. It's living in the spirit rather than living in um, that fleshy, selfish, human ego, uh, separateness world. Yeah. Well, I'm genuinely, like I said at the beginning, inspired, just feeling like you're, you're making me feel like this is possible. Like we really could make the world a better place. We can, Shelby, we yeah. can. <laughs> you guys are doing it with your podcast. And listen, part of where it begins is with just these conversations. Like, let's just have more spiritual conversations and we can disagree. It's okay. You know, um, We'll survive, like Nate said about people in social media, like, I disagree with you about two and a half things. I'm never going to speak to you again. Um, like, we can disagree because love is bigger than Trump. I'm <laughs> sorry. And love is bigger than Biden. And, and love is bigger <laughs> than any issue, you know? Can I, can I rapid fire through some questions? And there might be a little bit of office mixed in there. Uh-oh. Yes. Okay. All right. I have to ask, what would Dwight Schrute think of Soul Boom? <laughs> Dwight Schrute would think that Soul Boom was the biggest load of bullshit he had ever seen in his life. Because Angela introduced him to monotheism, right? <laughs> I don't that remember that. Is that a quote? I don't remember. It is, and that's the that's what I was going to ask you too. Do you feel? Do you meet these fans that have just seen seen every episode like twenty times, and you have have you seen every episode? I think I've seen every episode once okay. and i think i've seen 30 more uh twice but that's okay. it and most of the episodes we're talking remember the office ended 10 years ago so most of the time i've seen these episodes was 12 14 16 years ago <laughs> right so you would lose in an office trivia i would lose i would get my butt kicked in off any yeah. office trivia and they they always <laughs> like let's do a little office trivia what was Meredith's cat's cousin's name. And it's like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and okay, so a lot of people think it'd be a dream to be on a sitcom, right? Or on a television show like The Office. And I'm sure it was in a lot of ways, the relationships and all that kind of thing. My question is, I, I see these bloopers and I'm like, how did y'all do any work when you have to look Steve Carell in the eyes or he has got to, he's got to look you in the eyes how did you get any scene done? Aren't you, how are you not just laughing the whole time and you're professionals and everything, but come on. <laughs> we were laughing the whole time. We really were. I mean, we got better at it, but yeah, we would have to hold for laughter so many times and have <laughs> so many wasted takes. And it was, 
it was, or someone would just get the giggles. And remember, we're showing up to work. Usually our, our main call time was like usually between 5.30 and 6.30 a.m. So we were tired, you know, shooting at 3, 4 p.m. And you've been in there since 5.30 and you're just loopy, you know, and uh, under fluorescent lights. And it was, it was a struggle. But yeah. uh, I think the, the joy of the show bled through in the performances and the love of the ensemble bled through as well and kind of add to the emotional texture of, of the show and keep people coming back. Any particular scene where you just remember, like, we're never going to get through this. We are laughing too hard. Yeah, literally, they had to shut down production when John and I were doing a scene where we were on the party planning committee and we had to decorate the conference room and Dwight used black and brown balloons and it said, it is your birthday period. And we laughed so hard they had to shut down for 45 minutes. They were like, everyone take a break. We're just get a snack, have a coffee, make a phone call and come back because we, we couldn't stop laughing. It's, it's interesting, a show like this, and there's others, right? Like Friends and Seinfeld. And I mean, I don't know what that feels like to be on a show that you know is going to be this iconic thing. I mean, it's probably a top, you know, top two, three, four sitcom television show of all time, right? This is, we're, people are going to be talking about this in 50 years. Nate, 500 years. There you go. There you go. Probably, if we can figure out a way to watch it, they'll, they will watch it, right? <laughs> Aliens at this point in time are watching The Office to study human psychology. There you go, probably. That's happening. Well, and that's, I mean, I was kind of thinking this, and I think, I don't know, maybe you're even going to go here, of like human psychology. I mean, something like The Office, okay, sitcom, like it's just, it's hilarious. But but it is more than that. And even when you were saying, you know, rewriting human mythology, like life is stories. And even something like The Office or, yeah, Friends or Seinfeld, like is. There is, there's a reason that we connect with it. And it's not just because it's funny. It's because we're connecting with a character that, you know, something about them strikes deep within us. Or or there's a, a moment of one person, you know, where Michael shows up to Pam's art show and you're like, oh, that's somebody like got it right and d- did something for someone else. And there's just, I think, I think these things have, I mean, any story has a huge role in, and I and I, that, of all the pillars you mentioned of your seven pillars, I was like maybe that that one just stands out to me as for one something that we can do. I'm like I mean I love to to write and I love to to brainstorm and I'm like what kind of mythologies can I rewrite that? Mm. And I mean you've done a bit of one in your book, um, but then what other stories can we can we use to change the way that we think um, about each other? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to go to, to the, just, you know, you see someone, they quote the office and there's that connection that happens between me and the deeper, the, the deeper cut, the, the quote is the deeper, the connection between that other human. I'm like, there's something, we have something shared between us. Right. And you know, the office is just an example because that's the show you were on, but you can do it with any show. You can do it with the sports team. You can do it with uh, someone that says that thing about, about hiking, that it's like some term or some trail that you, and there's that connection, right? And, yeah. um, so these are the types of things that, that bring us together. And I think we do need to focus on the things that bring us together, the things that unify us, not just the things that divide us. We're so focused. I mean, so much money is made on the things that divide us. And I don't think people realize that just how much money is yeah. being made with the clicks and the ads and, yeah. uh, 
it's just so circuit. It's this downward spiral, right? This vicious yeah. cycle. Outrage and disgust and anger are what fuel most clicks, and that's where ad revenue comes from. So our media companies continually produce mm -hmm. uh, news items that make us disgusted, angry, and outraged. And uh, what kind of cycle does that create? You know, I talk about in my book. Well, your second pillar there was to squash cynicism or something yeah. like that, which I feel like, yeah, choosing not to click just don't get sucked into it yep. is part yep. of that. Okay, anyway, you're well, going to yep. keep saying it. It also tells us, it also incorrectly tells us that this is the reality. This is reality. This is how divided the world is. This is how bad the world, and you know, it's not, it's not, it's not true. It's not true. Those stories and those things are happening, but when that's all you see, I mean, talk about the mental health crisis. <laughs> this is all we see is the horrors of I mean, yeah. the world. That's and they're, why I they're, love going for a walk or going to the grocery store because when you just interact with an average human, you know, you, that you're passing with their dog, it's it's usually just wonderful. And you're just reminded yeah. that like humans are wonderful. And yeah, it's what, easy what, to be outraged when you're on Facebook yeah. and you block your cousin because mm -hmm. they support the political candidate that you hate. But when you're in a room with them, it's really hard to block them and to be outraged with them. Yeah. It's really hard, you know, it's, wow. it's doable. But I was saying that I met this guy who was the uh, speechwriter for uh, Greta Thunberg and does a lot of work mm. in environmental activism. And he said, you know, Rain, here's the work that I do personally for the environment and climate change is I focus on clean air because everyone likes clean air. Hardcore Republican loves clean air, you know, Rush Limbaugh wanted clean air and, you know, Greta Thunberg wants clean air. And guess what? If we can unite around it. It's a precious point of unity um, that mm. guess what? Win-win because when you have cleaner air, you're reducing CO2 and you're doing good for, you know, for climate change but it's something we can agree on. So find those points of things, build community around things that you can agree mm. on. That's a good place to start with a grassroots movement. That's a good one. Yeah. Mm. Like, all right, so as we're wrapping up, I have one small question to, to toss your way is, that's come up a lot in my recent conversations. What would you say is the purpose of life? Oh, that's easy. In the Baha'i faith, I'm gonna boil it all down into a, a nutshell. Here's the meaning of life and give me 90 seconds. Ready, set a timer. <laughs> all right. The Baha'is every day say a prayer that goes, um, I bear witness, O oh my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. So to know and worship God is part one of the meaning of life. What it means to know, what it means to worship, is not quite as simple and cut and dry and black and white as you think, right? So you have to meditate on knowing God and worshiping God. There's lots of ways to worship. Being of service is worship. Creating art is worship. Lots of ways to know. That's part one. Part two, we want to cultivate the spiritual virtues that are inside of us. Kindness, humility, honesty, compassion, because these are the components of our soul that we will take with us after we die. Part three is, Baha'u'llah says all men were created to usher forward an ever advancing civilization. All men were created to help humanity grow, learn, mature, and move forward. So those are the three, know and worship God, develop your spiritual virtues, and number three, help humanity grow, mature, and love more. Well, wow. Um, thank you. I'm going to I'm gonna have to go back and uh, memorize those for the next conversation that I yep. come into. 
where we talk about this unanswerable question that you just answered in 78 seconds. Well, I like it too, because it, it doesn't, you know, you, you, you say God there, right? And you bring up God, but you, the way you define those is uh, like, again, it's, a, it's what we started this whole thing talking about. This is for everyone. This is for anyone. This isn't, this isn't, uh, you don't have to believe in uh, miracles, right? That's where a lot of, a lot of people were lost with the Christian faith, right? They, they are like, I just can't get there on that the sea parted down the middle and people walked through. I just can't get there. So I'm done, right? I can't get there that someone was dead and then they weren't dead. I, I just can't get there. So I'm done. But this includes everybody. This can include everybody if the way you define these things, the way you defy, define God and knowing God and... Which didn't you define God at the very beginning of this episode in the Baha'i faith as an unknowable essence? Yes. And Shelby, thank you for bringing that up because here is the purpose of life from a Baha'i lens, to know God and God is essentially unknowable. So this is a paradox at the center of being alive. What does that journey look like? That's why in the Lakota tradition, God is called Wakantanka, which means the great mystery. Mm. So to get and to I know mean, the Christian great mysticism mystery. would emphasize that over and over again as well. I mean, yeah. I think that's probably one of Absolutely. those universals that every religion comes to at some point, mm -hmm. as it should. It's just so different, though, than the way that... I used to teach, I used to be a pastor, right? And so the way I used to teach and the way that I know many others that are in churches across this country and others, it's all about believing the right set of doctrines, right? It's all about knowing. I mean, we would say like, you know, the, that verse of having, uh, be prepared to give an answer, right? Be prepared to give an answer, like, and, and uh, just studying every single thing. So you knew when someone asked you this question, boom, I know the, like the idea that you couldn't know God would have been the farthest thing from from our minds. And so I love that, that, that idea, that bringing in the mysticism again. I mean, it just, yeah. The Imam Ali from Islam says, to know God is to know thyself. And uh, this is a hadith in Islam where, uh, and I love that too, like, so we know the unknowable by know ourselves. Does that mean that, that we're unknowable? What part of ourselves is unknowable? Our souls? Um, mm. yeah, I, I love the mystery and poetry and transcendent beauty of the human experience. Mm -hmm. It's, it's fantastic and it's difficult and it's filled with the juicy stuff of life. And you guys are carrying that torch forward with your wonderful podcast. Thank you. Appreciate I'm excited that. for the next messenger of God to come and hopefully it be a woman. <laughs> yes, I think it will be a woman. I think it will be a I woman. So. It'll probably be a lesbian. Probably. So, um, and God will, will be she. Uh, and then God will be a she. <laughs> I mean, God is so beyond gender. I oh, mean, so come beyond. On. We've Humans done a whole series on it. Oh, please. I mean, uh, in the Baha'i faith, it says the soul has no gender, right? So we're mm -hmm. souls, you know. Mm -hmm. Gender is just something we're linked to in this corporal existence. So much less God doesn't have a gender. So yeah, yeah, Ugh. but our language does. That's the truth. Yes. Well, Rain, I really appreciate this. I loved this chat, and mm. um, thank you so much for coming on. And I mean, I just feel lifted. I feel like <laughs> lighter after having this this chat. And I think Hopeful. some of the practical things, yeah, that you said for our listeners. I mean, I'm taking those, and I'm like, yeah, you know what? That it is time to actually commit those five minutes to. To meditation a day. I mean, five minutes, right? Like we can do this. You can do it. And you can be 10% more loving every mm -hmm. day. Mm -hmm. And guess what, guys? 
And listeners, hey, listen up. There's no hell. Good night, everybody. (laughs) Amen. We've got a series on that, too. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, truly. That sounds more like truth